Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. I'm Sam, as always, here with Andy. And Andy, before we get started, I have a show that I want to talk with you about. Um, not really a show, a documentary. It's a really short documentary. And I know no free ads is, is kind of something we say in jest, but this is one I think is worth watching. Have you heard of this documentary that has come out on HBO Max called When We Were Bullies? Uh, I don't think I have. Do tell. Okay, so... It's like I said, it's very short. It's only like 30 minutes long. And the filmmaker is this guy who runs into a buddy of his, I would say 15, 20 years after elementary school. He went to elementary school in the 60s in, I believe, Brooklyn, maybe New York, somewhere in that area. And they get to talking and they both remember this crazy bullying incident that happened when they were both in like third grade, fourth grade, something really young. And they both remember it. They had slightly different details of what they remembered. And it prompted this filmmaker to go around and interview people in their class about like, hey, what do you remember about this bullying incident, this crazy incident that happened in our class? I won't give you the details of the incident, it's because I kind of I kind of want you to go watch it. I don't yeah, want to give away it. the the secret, but it's interesting seeing the dynamic of these different people. Uh, what is again? This happened in the '60s, so this is when he starts interviewing folks. This is 40 plus years later, 50 years later. They either don't remember the incident, or they remember it differently, or they remember that this kid maybe was completely innocent, or maybe he kind of had it coming. And again, I, there's a few twists and turns throughout this 30 minute documentary, but it's a really cool sad but cool case study on a few different things one how mob mentality works even with young children's but then also it's just an interesting insight into like how different people remember different things and how incidents early in your life kind of impact you and shape the person that you become and you learn that throughout the documentary so that sounds fascinating it got nominated for best short documentary i believe that's the name of the award at the Academy Awards this last year. No free ads, but again, it's really cool. Highly recommend it. That sounds amazing, man. I I think I want to watch that for a couple of reasons. One is, I mean, we went to the same elementary school, middle school, and high school, and I think you and I could both think of several, maybe not isolated incidents, but just like situations around certain individuals that would, looking back, like that's kind of a similar vibe to those things where you're just like, oh man, like was that kids being kids? Was that going too far? Like... Not that you and I were flashback involved. to you giving me a swirly and me just being like, <laughs> no, Stop, I was just going to say, I was just going to say ne- neither of us were, uh, I don't know if we were like cool enough to bully anyone, but like we were definitely like around when those kind of incidents were happening in like PE or football in middle school, things like that. Right. And so you're just like, okay, like the second thing is I'm fascinated by the unreliability of the human memory, uh, just as a general yes. concept. It's something that we put a lot of stock in, like you can go to prison based on you know, someone sitting in a jury box and or in a witness stand and being like, I, I saw him, I was there. I saw this study a few years ago where they like asked 10,000 people about their rem- their them remembering 9-11. Like, what did you do? Where, where were you on 9-11? Which is extra fascinating because it's an event that like you'd think everyone remembers in vivid detail where they were, how they experienced it. And in fact, it was, it's almost a cliche to say Everyone remembers where they were when X, you know, it's one of those events. And what they Mm -hmm. found was that similar outcome that like 50% of people can actually not only do they it's not that they go, oh, I don't remember. It's that they have very clear, vivid, specific memories that are false that they've either amalgamated different days together or 
their brain in order to like not you know short circuit has like fused together different memories or like things they had heard and you know it, it kind of goes back to the like if you tell yourself a lie for long enough even you'll believe it and th- it's less yeah. nefarious than that but it's just like if you made a mistake one time 10 years ago about how you remembered something and then that's always how you remembered it that comes to be your reality and you'll even remember very explicit details about it so sure. it's a fascinating topic so i'm definitely interested to check it out there's a great revisionist history episode which is a podcast done by Malcolm Gladwell and he starts out by talking about Brian Williams the guy who he was the news anchor for I believe NBC nightly news and he he claimed that he got you know shot yeah down he in took over he took over Iraq. Peter Jennings spot on ABC that's Good crazy New- world world news tonight which is like the chair dude like that's that's yeah. the Walter Cronkite seat like right big stuff and part of the reason I bring this up is, A, it's a fascinating documentary. And again, I, I recommend that people go see When We Were Bullies because it's just a really cool look at just you're you're not as blameless as you think you are, right? Uh, and then the second thing is it kind of plays into the, the story that we're going to talk about today, which is The Social Network, written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by David Fincher. This movie has different POVs. It has not really unreliable narrators, but but the nature of the way that the story is crafted it forces you to ask whose memory is sharper in these events per se. And by the way, I I guess for disclaimer, much like we did in the yet to be released city of God episode with, you know, the way that you, you said it was like your favorite movie. This is probably my favorite movie. Uh, Nice. The more I thought about it, I just think this is such a, such a airtight film. It is a near flawless masterpiece. Um, I'm kind of nervous for this episode because I, I feel like I have to knock this out of the park. I mean, this is such a great <laughs> case study in how to tell a story, not only to write, but how to tell a story from like a directorial perspective, from a music score perspective. But again, particularly for the writing, this is such a great story. And I'm super looking forward to this. I story. have a special relationship with this movie. This was like every year, there's kind of a movie chosen to be kind of like the poster child for Adobe's film editing capabilities and like adobe works on it it's kind of their flagship for like hey everyone watch the oscars this is the power of adobe and they'll highlight some specific piece of the film my dad has worked at adobe for 15 years and this was that film the year it came out for obvious reasons and we had like 20 blu-ray copies of this movie in our house that my dad had been given for free and i can't tell you how many times i watched this movie with my dad and they would get to a scene with the winklevoss twins and he'd be like that's that's one guy that's one guy. Yeah. <laughs> Which it is. It is, yeah. He ain't wrong. Yeah, and, it's, and it is Army Hammer. excellently done CGI. Uh, little did we know at the time, Army Hammer was a fucking real weirdo, but he is a, a great actor in this what's movie. The, what, what's the deal with him? How weird is he? Oh, man. He, he, like, a bunch of his texts and stuff leaked, and he was just sending, like, not, not anything. It's kind of like the Louis C.K. situation where it's not, like, illegal or something. It's just, like, he's a real fucked up guy. Like, he's sending just, like... Like James Franco territory? Yeah, just, like, sending real, like, shit that lets you know that he's a damaged person on the inside. Being, like, I don't even want to repeat it on the podcast, but effectively just, like, explaining his sexual proclivities to a young woman who he was going to hook up with. And it was all about, like, I want you to pretend to be dead. I want you to, like... I want Ugh, you to bleed okay, a little yeah. bit. Like, it's I, I, real I'm fucked good, up, I'm dude. Good. But at I'm the good. time, we didn't know that, and he did a tremendous job in this film. I also really like this movie because it was the beginning of people taking a different look at Mark Zuckerberg. Up until this movie came out, Mark Zuckerberg was kind of the the new generation Silicon Valley, like, 
oh, this is the next generation of founders. Like, this is who they're all aspiring to be. Like, he's a bajillionaire. He's, you know, this great American business success story. And I think that this movie does a great job of, without, like, turning him into a monster... You can you can totally understand all the things that he does, but very similar to how uh, the founder did with Ray Kroc, the movie that uh, they did about the founding of McDonald's just shows like kind of the dark side of that whole world. Like we kind of in America, we love the idea of like smart, but colors outside the lines entrepreneur who like builds builds a, an empire in a garage like with nothing but and who's not a piece of shit yeah and and with nothing but just like outside the box thinking elbow grease and you know he's too out there for the establishment you know he's always a college dropout and no one believes the vision and he's always just telling them to fuck themselves and then he, but he ends up being proven correct in the end kind of the outlaw of the business world and we love that myth and what this shows and many of these stories show is that it really is a myth like that that almost doesn't exist there may have been a time when like someone invented a business with nothing but you know their own wit but this is certainly not one of those stories one other comment i'll make before we really dig into it is has there ever been a story that did was more like kind in their casting to the characters involved? Like, if you've ever seen what Sean Parker looks like, what Eduardo Saverin looks Ed- like, Eduardo Saverin life, is dude. That if I was Eduardo Saverin, I would be like, yes, dude, no joke. Andrew Garfield looks like a model in that movie, oh. and well, Eduardo Saverin like- in real life, like. He's not painful to look at, but I mean, come on. Well, and like, do you think Eduardo Saverin looked nearly as cool as Andrew Garfield doing the whole like, you better lawyer up, asshole. Like, I love, I love when standing next to you, Sean. I look so tough. Like, he looks like such a badass in that scene. Andrew and- Garfield is the reason why at the towards the end of college. I was wearing nothing but tight clothes in black because I wanted to be this guy. You wanted to be uh, was, Euro, Eurofit Saverin. Yeah, he, he was. I was that meme that's that shows superimposed. Patrick Bateman walking out of a movie theater and it's like when you're 12 and you've just finished watching a movie and you've just downloaded the cool character's entire personality. That was me after I watched Social Network. I was Eduardo Saverin, except for the getting screwed out of billions of dollars part. Hey, we can't all be that lucky, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When he, he only has 0.03% of Facebook by the end of the film, which I'm still like, hey, that's pretty nice. Which, by the way, we're going to get into some, as we kind of go through the the script we will talk about what happened and what really didn't happen and by the way his shares only got diluted to 10 percent, which is still a lot from 30 percent ish but it's not 0.03 no it's it's way more about the principle of and and i think that that and i guess we'll get into this but just because we mentioned it i think that's a good creative decision because a normal person who has who knows what facebook is now being like well he's still at 10 percent of facebook like Shut the fuck up, dude. But at the time, the principle of diluting your own co-founder down to like a third of what his original stake was without taking a hit yourself, the fact that we didn't know what 10% of Facebook was going to be worth, like that, so they they made a decision. Um, One thing I Every 1% means a ton, even when you're talking about a company that's a small fraction of what Facebook is worth. One thing I wish they had included in the movie that, and I know why they didn't, it, ma- it would make no sense, is the David Cho story, which is, I think he is the greatest winner in the Facebook story ever. David Cho Who's was David a- Cho? Ho- David Cho? was a homeless street artist in LA, super cool dude, like very like, you know, LA art scene, early 2000s. He got hired by Facebook to paint the mural on the wall of their first headquarters, and they offered him 50 grand. He requested that instead of 50 grand in cash, they give him 50 grand in Facebook stock pre-IPO. 
and they agreed, Ooh. and he made five hundred million dollars and never worked there, and now he's just like half a billy, rich as fuck, chilling, dude. Like <laughs> he is God, the greatest winner. Goat. That's called winning the lottery, dude. Like that is he didn't have oh to do God. shit except paint, which he did anyway. <laughs> like it was awesome. So he's my That's favorite so of all sick. time. He is the yeah. man. They should have had that at the end of the at the end of the movie when they have the blur was about like how everybody how much cash everybody ended up with. They should have had like, oh yeah, and by the way, there's this guy named David Cho we didn't even cover who is the real winner here. Yeah, like all I said. wanted was a scene of like some some dude on a ladder like painting a wall and they'd be like, We'll work out payment later. You know, like just some throwaway line just so like people that know would be like, Fuck yeah, dude, that's David Cho. Like it's probably a good thing they didn't include the David Cho story because he probably would have finessed the studio, been like, "Oh yeah, oh, I, that, I should get you absolutely, know, you know, a man that point zero one percent of of <laughs> of the gross back end net yeah. royalties in China, and then like end up with like, <laughs> wait, he ended up with double the profit of the whole movie. How oh, did he do so that, rad, dude? I lo- he's my idol, bro. Like that is, I just want one what of those goat. one finesse like that in my career. So God. let's get That's into it, need, dude. Man. I love this movie. Let's yeah. get into it. The first scene is almost iconic at this point. It gets into the conversation with Mark Zuckerberg and Erica Albright, who's his in girlfriend, a fictional girlfriend. There's a real girlfriend that he breaks up with, whose name we won't be talking about on the podcast, but there's this, basically it's a breakup scene, right? And it's just two people sitting in a booth at a crowded restaurant slash bar grill. And it's, this is just, this is Aaron Sorkin at his best. It's the it's the chopped up dialogue of two people not on the same page. There's a lot of subtext to it. And why don't you take it away? I mean, just give us kind of a synopsis of how that how that dialogue goes down. It's 17 pages in the script, but it's only about five minutes of screen time. Yeah, it's like a rapid fire dialogue scene that kind of illustrates the fact that Zuckerberg is very much like about carrying on multiple strains of conversation at the same time, kind of an ADD type brain. And he's both carrying on this discussion of like China and Harvard and then, but his real the, like the, fixa- ro- yeah, the rogue, the row crew. Yeah. And-, and his fixation is the finals clubs. Yeah. Which I don't think most people that don't go to an Ivy League school are that familiar with. I think the one that most people are like aware of is Skull and Bones, which, you know, presidents have been in, things like that. That's a, that's a sweet name. Oh, they sound yeah. like good people. Yeah, definitely. The they're, 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 they're not doing rituals of any kind, you know. Um, but yeah. you know, at these like very old ancient institutions, they, ha- instead of like traditional fraternities and sororities, they have these like the Porcellian and like all these kind of like, f- you know, fraternal the organizations, Phoenix the, the Phoenix club. Talk yeah. About. And these are effectively, they fill the exact same role as fraternities. They're just like another level of pretentiousness and wealth and blue blood. They just sound more pretentious. The finals club. Oh, absolutely. And Mark, He is incredibly brilliant and incredibly quick-witted, but he has an intense insecurity complex around his perception other people have for him. And he's talking to this girlfriend he has, and over the course of the conversation, uh, he kind of begins to belittle her. It's one of the most, like, frustrating conversations ever for any, I think, for anyone who's been in a relationship just to watch this guy kind of treat his girlfriend like shit. And you're just like, God, dude, shut up. Oh, and she... And she tries so many times to save the conversation. Like, yeah, she's being so okay. <laughs> and he's off the walls, and she's trying so hard to rein him back in. And when she tries to relate to him, he's like, "No, I'm not talking about that. What do you th- What do you mean?" Yeah, and it kind of it kind of culminates it culminates in this thing where she gets mad, and she's like, "I need to go do homework." And he goes, "No, you don't." And she goes, "Why do you keep saying I don't have to go do homework?" And he goes, "Because you go to BU," which mm-hmm. shows that for all his like 
vitriol about other people looking down on him for not being like a cool jock guy, he also carries that exact same level of disdain for people he considers to be inferior to him in his own playground, which is like academic excellence and intelligence. He's projecting onto other people. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the final straw and she she storms off. So that's our introduction to Mark Zuckerberg. From this kind of like they use this as an inciting incident of anger for him to go home and create Face Mash, which is kind of this highly lauded original story. One of the mythos of Facebook is Mark Zuckerberg creating this program, kind of like Hot or Not, if anyone remembers that from the early 2000s, where it would... Which I can't believe that was a thing, by the way. That that was a real... I remember as, like, in high school, that being a real app. Uh, yeah, dude, you're looking at a certified 8.8 on Hot or Not, so... <laughs> Ooh. Take that for what you will, but wow. so, I wasn't so, allowed. I wasn't allowed to upload photos of myself back then. I would have to get parents' permission. There much you like go. Neopets.com. That's probably a good idea. Honestly, you probably had more responsible parents than me. But uh, love you, Holly. But <laughs> he he created this app where it would display two Harvard students next to each other, and it would say like, or it would display a har- a picture of a Harvard student. It would say, "Is this person hot?" Or is this? Or no, he would. Sorry, that's the hot or not site. This is the face mask, which is two Harvard students. Which one of these is more attractive? And to be left or right. And in order to get pictures of every Harvard student, he went in and hacked into the Facebooks for the houses of Harvard, which are effectively like student groupings within every Harvard student is in a house. Now, at this time, Facebook did not mean what we consider it to mean. Now, Facebook was simply a database of effectively like here are the pictures and identification information of all the people in a given group. Uh, And he went through, he hacked all of it. It became wildly popular overnight as it was sent out across Harvard email servers, and it culminates in like him having this kind of first of many like these big boardroom showdowns where the head of Harvard Internet Security is like, uh, you know, our the sophistication of our network enabled us to track you down within six hours, and he's like, if you had known what you were looking for, you would have seen it written on my dorm room window. And so that's the first of yeah. these just like, so hey, sick. I'm the CEO bitch moments that Zuckerberg has, which... He has several. I've heard a lot of people wonder, like, what Zuckerberg thought of this movie when he watched it. Because I think a normal human with feelings would would view this negatively. Would be like, this portrays me as a soulless asshole. And I really do think that Zuck liked this shit. I'm 100% convinced of that. Especially when you read, like... like, Secretly liked it? Oh, yeah. I, I think when you read the... Especially when you read the early quotes from Zuckerberg, like at this time in his life, you know, people asked like when he was founding Facebook, like, well, how are you going to get, you know, pictures and data on people? And he's like, that's the best part. People are stupid. They'll give it to me. Like people are idiots. So he has like pretty much open disdain for everyone that's not him or someone he likes personally. And so I don't think that he had any problem with this depiction, like deep down in his soul. Yeah. And and by the way, the face mash incident was true apparently um, yeah one of the things that is true about this story is that he really did have a public blog which by the way is that not just the sign of early internet that oh my god yeah somebody that's attending harvard that has aspirations is publicly posting a blog talking shit about people that where it could be left forever but and i'm not again i'm not gonna say the name of the girl you can find it on your own but he he really did say not erica albright is is a bitch like i've got to do something to take my mind off her he really did post that and then make face mash soon after that and that became the groundwork for what became facebook so it's just crazy like it's it's again sorkin wrote this screenplay before anybody else got a hold of it before the studio got a hold of it before um 
David Fincher got involved. So it was really Sorkin who did the groundwork for that investigation, if you will. And I think it was a great decision to take that blog post and then create this kind of Erica Albright figure, which kind of plays throughout the rest of the film. You know, when you're building a character, you think about like the skeleton in the closet. Well, Erica Albright is a great skeleton in the closet. She's a great thing for the character to latch onto to create a want or a need out of that plays throughout the story. So Erica is not a huge character throughout the story, but the idea of Erica, the idea of being rejected by women in this movie is a huge driving force for why Mark does what he does. Yeah, it's villain origin story, dude. It's like classic villain origin it's, story. Yeah. He follows Hoodville. He uh <laughs> he absolutely does. He so Face Mash leads to this 6-month academic probation uh for Mark, but it also attracts the attention of Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, who uh that is their real name and that's crazy because that's like the most like stereotypical like pair of rich twin names ever. And they are like these incredibly wealthy rowers uh, who are in the best finals club at Harvard and they're both like 6'3 and they're super good looking athletes that are going to be in the Olympics and they are working on kind of a proto Facebook idea uh, called the Harvard Connection which is effectively very something very similar to uh, what many social networks were at the time, like MySpace or Friendster or what would become Facebook, but their hook was that uh, you can only join it if you have a harvard.edu email address, which we see that echoed in what would eventually become Facebook, which is you had to have uh, a college email address to sign up for Facebook originally. I remember when Facebook Do you remember out, that? I, I, I remember that being a thing when I was in high school. I remember one of my buddies sisters went to BYU and she could get a Facebook, but we couldn't. And then about three or four months later, she was like, oh yeah, now it's open to high school students. And I think they just had a simple check that was like, are you in high school? And then after that, they opened up the floodgates for now every robot and every business can make a Facebook if they want. Yeah. Um, certainly there, like the initial draw was that they were going for was this kind of exclusivity and they Obviously, it worked really well. We didn't know at the time, because it's very funny looking back. People did not understand how Facebook was going to become a business. Like, we didn't even view it as a business. Like, I remember people being like, why is Facebook IPOing? How is Facebook ever going to make money? Because the concept of, like, personal data being valuable had not dawned on the greater market or the greater public consciousness. And so people were just like willy-nilly putting every moment of their life on Facebook, every picture, every everything, and just handing all this data over to Facebook, and it never occurred to anyone. They were like, they're going to sell all that shit for ads. <laughs> like, Which was Eduardo's like huge driving point no, for uh, sure. throughout this film. Yeah, and it was, was that and, great. And in real life, like Eduardo was all about selling the ads. He wanted to monetize that shit real fast. I, I don't know to what extent the – his, because obviously he's very much about like we need to make this a business. We need to sell ads on Facebook, but I don't. They never weighed too deeply into the concept of like Facebook. It's not that so many people go on Facebook and so you'll see ads. It's that Facebook uses your data to target ads at you, which makes it so valuable for advertisers and so valuable for Facebook. What I think that that was probably like kind of too heady a concept and would just kind of slow the story down if they had to have a scene explaining that concept. And so they just kind of left it as like tons of people are on Facebook. So we should sell ads. And that becomes kind of this like 
great a battle for the soul of Facebook, effectively. So the uh, the Winklevoss twins and their business partner, uh, I think his name's Divya Narendra, uh, approach Zuckerberg, yeah. and they're like, "Hey, man, like you're a pretty you're clearly a beast of a programmer. Our programmer just graduated last." spring he went to google come work for us on harvard connection we'll let you kind of rehab your image with uh by working on this project with us and you know we'll lend our <laughs> popularity to you he's like oh will you let me do that for me really would yeah. you be so kind and- that that rubs him really the wrong way and very quickly after this encounter and offer he approaches his roommate eduardo with the idea of starting the facebook which was the original name for Facebook. Eduardo provides all the original seed money, $1,000, so that they can spin up servers and everything else they're going to need to handle building out the site, traffic, all those kind of things. And so begins this dance where Mark pretends he's going to be working on Harvard Connection, but is actually building the Facebook and kind of dodges or ghosts the Winklevoss twins and Divya Narendra. And then all of a sudden, they're made aware of it. It is everywhere on Harvard's campus. And the Facebook has like, you know, 10,000 members in the, you know, the first couple weeks. And it's spreading like wildfire. And, and by the way, before before we get into that and like what happens after that, when they first figure out that the Facebook has launched, essentially, when Divian goes and finds the Winklevoss twins rowing and he's show them that he's, you know, that Zuckerberg's gone live with the site. And then it shows the Winklevoss twins and him sitting in a room talking about what their next steps are going to be, whether or not they're going to use their family's lawyers, whether or not they're going to use the Harvard student handbook and all that. There's several scenes that break up this struggle between the Winklevoss twins. And from a writing perspective, it's great that they used one of the Winklevoss twins as a bit of a control to be the well, I don't know if we should really go that hard on Mark. We're Harvard men after all, right? Yeah. And then the other two are like, no, we need to gut this kid. And it takes a few scenes for the the third member of the party, the other Winklevoss twin, to, to buy into it. But I like how every time that Mark has a big win, they go back to the Winklevoss twins. They're kind of the the primary antagonist for a majority of the film and showing their reaction to all of Mark's big wins. Right. I just think that's, it's, it's very well structured. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the, yeah, like you said, they become aware of this and they start wondering how they're going to proceed. They talk to their father's lawyers and while this is happening with them, they're pursuing like some method by which to stop Mark. There's also kind of trouble brewing on the Facebook side of things with Eduardo has been punched by the Phoenix, which means he has been like offered membership into the Phoenix. Yeah. And obviously, as we know from the first scene to have, you know, Mark considers himself to be like, I'm the big deal. I started the Facebook and yet my co-founder is the one who's been punched by the Phoenix. And so immediately Mark is like, very dismissive of it like when he makes the first cut he's like he has that comment where he's like you know you should be proud of that even if you don't make it any farther you know that's really good yeah the, like, yeah the, yeah he's like dude. this is it's probably a diversity thing but yeah you should be really proud yeah it's so fucked so. up dude and so they're they're continuing their work on the facebook meanwhile the winklevoss twins go to the president of harvard larry summers and explain the situation and larry summers God, in such cl- a great scene in classic like boomer fashion is just like you kids today none of you want to get a job you want to invent a job and they're like you don't understand like this is a billion dollar idea and he's like oh is it now someone's gonna pay a billion dollars for a website okay kid blah, blah, blah. you're just like God, yeah dude, that's probably he's like look exactly this is harvard happened. people come up with billion dollar ideas every single day so what do you what exactly do you want me to do yeah and they're just like uh, yeah, it's, uh it's like, get out of my office i can't imagine how frustrating that would be I, I could speak to like every single scene in this 
in this movie and point to particular lines of dialogue that Sorkin nails because one of the th- I mean, there's a few things that's that Sorkin dialogue is known for it's known for the short choppiness it's known for the interruptions it's known for the casual nature of people interrupting each other and having half thoughts um but another thing it's known for is the quippiness and the good lines and one of the lines of that scene that is I love is one of the Winklevoss gets into their pitch as to why the president of Harvard should care that the Facebook the idea got stolen and he's literally 20 seconds which doesn't sound like a lot but it is 20 seconds into describing why the president should care and he turns to his assistant and is like march so please kill yeah. me <laughs> yeah yeah he's like please go ahead and punch me in the face yeah Continue. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just like jars you into being like oh this guy really does not give a shit right now and i think i like about sorkin which i think all writers should do this and is is framing the scene. The beginning of the scene is really important to frame what the scene's going to be about. And something that Sorkin does throughout this movie, he does a good job of wrapping up the scene with a thesis. Um, And this scene does a really good job of that. Not only when he goes into the office of the president, but when when they're dealing with the Winklevoss twins, that is, when they're dealing with the secretary. The very first line in that scene is, she's like, be careful, this building is 100 years older than the country that it resides in. Right. And they're kind of just like, yeah, right. They walk in. Then when they meet with the president and they're pissed off, they storm out in a fit of rage. And one of the Voss twins accidentally rips off the doorknob and then slams it on the desk and is like, oops, broke your 335 year doorknob. <laughs> That's the end of the scene. And I, every every scene in this movie can be, again, has a great opening and a great cap to it, which I think is, again, if you do, if you do only one thing right with your writing, that's all you need. Like that's not all you need, but it just it brings a smile to my face when I when I watch this movie because there's so many instances of that. It is so well done. Um, the next scene is also one of my favorite. So Zuckerberg and Eduardo go to a talk given by Bill Gates at Harvard, and as they leave, they're kind of accosted by these guys that are like, "Hey, you're Mark, right? Like you started the Facebook, like super cool." And the guys like. He's like, man, I swear, when he said the next Bill Gates might be in this audience, like, I know he was looking at you. And he's like, honestly, I don't even know who the speaker was. And he's like, it was Bill Gates. And he's like, fuck, that makes sense. Okay. And yeah. Like, so, and his also, friends just, like, jock on him after that. Yeah, yeah they're like, can, you, can I buy a Glock so I can kill you? <laughs> so also at this, at this talk, they run into... Uh, who will become, like, kind of a part of the story here, Christy Lee, this, like, really attractive girl and her friend. And they're like, oh, you invented the Facebook, London right? from Sweet Life of exactly. Jack, Zach and Cody. And who has it, a kid with uh, Macaulay Culkin now in real oh, life. Oh, hell yeah. And, uh, Just throwing that out there. And she says, hey, Facebook me. We'll go get drinks. And that is just, like, this moment for them where they're like, I love what when Eduardo's walking out with Zuck and he's just like, so several things. First of all, she said, Facebook me. Second of all, she said, we'll go get drinks later. Have you ever heard so many good things packed into one sentence of such a small size? And so obviously like their social standing is climbing with this and they make the decision to expand Facebook outside of just Harvard. They go to Yale, they go to Columbia. Time out real quick. Yeah. I have to, I have to bring up a scene with Chrissy Lee that I, I love and I, and I didn't love, like, this movie came out in 2010, and it came out before I was really into writing. And then as I became a writer, I loved this scene. It's the scene where they go out and get drinks, and then afterwards, Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo hook up with Chrissy and her friend. And they go into that bathroom, yeah. and then afterwards, uh, the guy tries to enter the bathroom, and they're like, 
the girls are freshening up in there and the guy's like nice and there's two things that happened after that one there's this exchange of kind of like looks and smirks and smiles and laughs that eduardo and mark have that remind me of like nights out with your friend when you're up to no good and something crazy is happening you just exchange that kind of like no like no words are needed like smile and laugh you know yeah i i think they do a great job of putting that on the screen and then the second thing is it's another insert into the erica albright skeleton if you will where mark sees erica goes up confronts her and she's like i don't want to deal with you and even to the point where her friend is like is there a problem here and then when he walks away erica turns around and is like good luck with your video game or whatever (laughs) which i I can almost guarantee you that this did not happen in real life right yeah where mark ran into the real girl that broke up with him shortly before he made face mash but because at this time by the way around this time he started dating his then wife um whose name is escaping me but his wife in real life so I can almost guarantee you that this didn't happen, but I think it's a great touch by the writing to insert Erica again to remind you the the want and the need that Mark has because immediately after that interaction, Mark walks past Eduardo kind of in a fit and rage is like, we need to expand. And that's yeah. where we lead to where you're supposed to So start. yeah, they, they do expand. Yale, Columbia, they're trying to do the East Coast and this is where Eduardo's idea is, hey, it's time for them to see this in Silicon Valley. Like we need to go to Stanford, which then is the kind of transition to us being introduced to this movie's version of Sean Parker, who Sean Parker in real life is like, I'm not saying he's a total loser. I don't know the guy, but like in this movie one, he's played by Justin Timberlake. So of course he's just cool as fuck. If they ever do a movie for my life, post my life, I just want you to know, Andy, if Justin Timberlake is interested, you should tell them that that's a, that's cool with me. Yeah, absolutely. So they introduce his character with him, like, hooking up with this chick from Stanford, and she needs to go shower. He's in her bed. He's like, hey, I'm going to check my email. And he discovers Facebook at this moment. He's like, and in this movie's telling of events, Sean Parker sees Facebook for four seconds and is like, this is the greatest idea of all time. I need to find you, Mark Zuckerberg. Can I insert what's real in that situation real quick? Yeah, please. First of all, I didn't realize that until I watched it maybe the 10th time that I've seen Social Network, but that's Dakota Johnson. So oh. shouts out of Fifty Shades of Grey fame and having one of the most Fuego houses on Architectural Digest's uh, celebrity house tours. Um, but then also, the other thing is that in real life, Sean Parker really was dating a stanford student and yeah i have no trouble believing he was wrestling. dating what is effectively a child like he seems like that kind of guy <laughs> so out sean parker absolutely so uh and he actually knows uh in this movie christy lee uh who is now dating eduardo saverin and so when they're out in uh sf they arrange to meet uh sean parker for dinner and shouts out to you for calling it sf you, you truly are a google employee Yes, I. Uh, that's been pounded into my head. That's just how everyone refers to it. So <laughs> they're out in the bay, you know. They're out in. They're out in. Fris- <laughs> they're out in Frisco. You know what I mean. So they're out in SF. They're at this restaurant, and Sean Parker comes in like an absolute hurricane. Like he knows all the waitresses. He knows the names of the drinks. He knows the stuff that's not on the menu. Like that kind of guy. The way that he looks at them and is like, and the yeah, tartar, exactly. and like does it like points the, the fingers and stuff. God, and so pretentious. It is. It's very divisive. Instantly, Christy and Zuck are about it because he represents like what Zuck wants to be, which is like the nerd who has crossed over into being cool guy. 
And then for Eduardo, he's sure. just, like, the fucking worst. Like, instantly he hates this dude. I mean, looking at it from his perspective, it's like, this cool guy that, like, is really famous who your girlfriend knows, that is a bad dynamic to start off. You know, if, like, Cassie was like, you get, you need to meet Harry Styles. We used to date. He's so cool. I'd be like, maybe. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> I don't yeah. Know yeah, I mean, not that cool. Like, um, so they said... <laughs> He's yeah. not that rich. He's only worth yeah. what, 80 million. So, That's so that he sits down and starts kind of regaling them with the story of Napster and about how he was like targeted and like, you know, stalked by private investigators and pushed out by VCs and how like as a founder, like you become this like target of like blackmail and extortion. And this resonates with Mark, who kind of already carries this paranoia from his time, you know, already being kind of like pushed back against by various other parties, the Winklevosses, Harvard, etc. And they get into this discussion. It, it turns into kind of like this first real division within the Facebook team, which is the whole question of like, should we have advertising? Should we not? And of course, Sean Parker comes down on the side of Zuck being like, Yo, what you have is cool. Like, you don't even know what it is yet. You can't put ads on it, then it's not cool. And He's like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah. And as he's leaving, he gives, like, what is probably the most famous line from this film, which is him saying, by the way, drop the the, just Facebook, it's cleaner. And that is maybe his, like, so, his, yeah. maybe maybe Sean Parker's greatest contribution to this company. Uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of it. So, but, yeah. hey. it And opening the door to a few cool investors definitely. and whatnot. Um, I want to talk about this scene for a second specifically. A few things about this scene that stick out to me. I think this... This scene encapsulates why the structure that Sorkin went with is so cool. The fact that you have these depositions for these lawsuits. And so this scene is told from the perspective of Eduardo. While Sean is giving his pitch, it it will go back and forth between Sean talking at the table and, and doing his whole Sean show, as Eduardo puts it, and then Eduardo talking about how pretentious that Eduardo sounds. And so it's a really good insight into how the how one of the characters is feeling during the yeah. situations and you get this throughout the entire film as we said is you're able to get just an insight into you know not only what's going on but how a certain character remembers it and how they felt yeah. during it um so you get that subjectivity as the as the movie's happening without without having to uh show it with acting it doesn't it, you don't have to have the characters act out and like give kind of side eye glances or give heavy-handed dialogue you can have them acting like a cool customer at the table, but then it goes back to the deposition and he'll be like, nah, this is really stupid. I hated yeah. it the whole time. But Mark was really buying into it, which you obviously Yeah, see. and it, it leads to this this shows kind of the, the beginning of the real like philosophical split of Facebook and it, it comes right before the, the geographic split of Facebook. So based on kind of Sean Parker's like pitch and vision of the company and the need to be closer to VCs, etc. Uh, Zuck makes the decision to move the company out to Palo Alto for the summer. Meanwhile, Eduardo is going to continue like more, a more traditional path and take this internship in New York and also pursue advertiser and business relationships uh, for Facebook there. And so they are split, and Zuckerberg gets his house out in Menlo Park, close to where ultimately Facebook's headquarters would be, and begins spending a lot more time with Sean Parker. There's a scene where they're in this, what I have to say is probably just like the worst fucking nightclub I've ever seen. Just looks fucking horrible. Like my my personal hell is just this, one of those nightclubs is just playing like insanely loud, like 
European techno music where you can't even hear and you can't really see. Oh yeah, like just yeah, house music. It's like being yeah. inside and of like fifteen dollars yeah. cocktails, and it takes you an hour to get a drink. I will say though, when this movie came out in twenty ten, I was like, man, this club oh, of looks course. sick. And then the older I yeah. get, I'm like, man, this club looks like yeah. a nightmare. Unless you are Sean, and if you, now if you had a table and you have like service sure. coming to you, even then it's not ideal because you can't hear what people are saying. But there's like a there's like a time and a place Agreed. for that, right? Whereas back then I was like. Dude, sign me up for that. Every I was Friday the same night. way, and uh, and Sean imparts to Zuckerberg the the story of the founder of Victoria's Secret, and basically alerts him to the idea of like don't take the first payout, right? Like that's the the lesson is like if you listen to what Eduardo's saying and you cash in early, you will end up jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge and killing yourself because the big money comes later. Sure. A quick quick note about that scene. If if you're interested in how this story came together and some of the more technical elements of how Sorkin particularly work with David Fincher, I recommend Lessons from the Screenplay on YouTube has a great video and there's there's this behind-the-scenes footage that it shows in that video of, in the original script, um, Sean Parker says multiple times, this isn't their time, this is our time, blah, right. blah, blah. Fincher is the one to, that tells, that kind of like is able to finagle the script and the acting into saying, you know, Justin Timberlake. Like, instead of saying it multiple times, you just need to say it as like a thesis of this of this yeah. scene, which we've talked about a little bit. Like In general, this movie does such a good job of bookending the beginning of the scene with what the scene is about and then the wrap-up of the scene shows you in in one or two lines of dialogue the the new equilibrium um you see this a lot in in, in other fincher movies as well like gone girl where in in the this is our time and really driving home to mark that this is this is like where you need to take your onus and take your piece of the pie again it's just a really good example of of fincher and Sorkin working well together because I don't know if we've talked about this too much, but Sorkin's Sorkin dialogue can get very, um, it's almost uber realistic, if you will, where kind of like what I'm doing, characters will repeat themselves and will go, will go on and on about something and there'll be a lot more back and forth and a lot of words used. Whereas Fincher as a director is able to turn some of that into more theatrics where the character says the impactful thing and it sets the tone, right? Which is not really how real life arguments and conversations yeah, happen. So just a quick no, note that's, about that. That's great that insight. Um, and so we're, we're starting to see like Sean kind of in inject his like personality approach experiences into Zuckerberg being like, Hey, like you have the chance to be what I could have been kind of thing. And of course Zuckerberg wants to be Sean Parker so desperately at this point, like he has everything that Zuckerberg wants. So while this is happening, we cut over to Henley in England, where the uh, Royal Regatta is taking place, like the, the most storied, blue-blooded event, maybe on Earth. It's a it's a rowing race between Harvard and Oxford, uh, traditionally, and in this particular race, it is Harvard rowing against uh, the Dutch, the Dutch national team. That was in yeah. England? I, I thought that was, like, on the Hudson yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, that's why uh, that you see, like, all those, like— European royals there is because they they're on their home turf, but yeah, it's they're rowing at they're rowing at Got Henley, it. which is kind of this like very famous rowing spot. They might have invented the sport of rowing there, for all I know. But they end yeah. up losing this race by like an inch, which is very symbolic, right? Of like they you know these are very strong players, but they lost by an inch because of you know what was going on. And they talk about it in these terms of like if we lose a race and it's a clean race, that's fine. We'll see the Dutch again. But if we if we show up and the race was run yesterday, that I have a problem with. 
Can, we, can I talk about that race scene for a second, specifically before we get into the like what happens after the race? Because the importance of this scene is the race itself and the fact that they lose by an inch kind of just again sets the tone for the scene as they go into the the celebration afterwards and talk more about Facebook. But the race itself, I think, is a great example of the the score. This movie has a great score. That they do this thing where they'll mirror, they'll have like kind of a classical tone to it, but then they'll add this kind of new age synth yeah. to it. So a lot of scenes, like the very beginning of the movie, the the main theme of the movie, it has that piano. It's like dun 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 yeah. dun, you know. And then as that song goes along, they start adding a little bit more of like the scratchy, almost like we talked about house music, but like scratchy new age music right. to it, eight oh eight things like that. And in this scene, they do a good job with the, they have the, uh, again, I don't remember what the classical song is, but it's a dun, 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 And it shows them rowing. And as that, that song crescendos, like it gets faster and faster. And as they're getting closer to the finish line, they go through and it, it does the whole climactic dun, 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 dun. And, but it starts throwing in all these like, uh, distortions. It's very like new age. And, and the camera switches from, um, I forget the name of the camera they're using at the time, but it, it goes to a different camera that has shows more of like the live movement of right. them crossing the finish line, and it shows them putting their hands in their face. And I think it's a great job of showing the music just increasing in pace as things get more and more exciting, and then obviously the crescendo ends with just in their world tragedy because they lost this huge race yeah. so and it, and it le- as i said it leads into what happens next right and so in this kind of after party they're forced to kind of do this like the worst thing ever which is to like kind of smile and shake hands with everyone in right after a big loss and they meet with a european royal i think he's like the eighth earl of whatever and he expresses that his daughter is on this new site called facebook and he's like wait your your daughter's on facebook here and like yeah it's all over oxford cambridge london school of economics and so they're like oh my god he's expanded to like yeah it's an international site now and so this is kind of the breaking point for them they decide uh to sue for intellectual property theft kind of the beginning of the depositions that we are watching as the framing device for yeah. the movie, the third, the third uh, member of that whole that triad, yeah. right? Where it's the it's the other Winklevoss twin that's been holding out the whole time. He's finally like, "Let's gut yeah, these nerds yeah. or whatever." Let's <laughs> so gut the little nerd. <laughs> Fuck yeah, yeah. Um, and so while this is happening, we we cut back to uh, the West Coast, and Sean and Zuck are kind of doing this like living out power fantasies around venture capital firms. They're having Zuck like show up to venture capital pitches like hours late in a bathrobe and telling them to fuck themselves to their face and stuff. But Facebook is such a hot commodity that even these guys who they're like openly disrespecting are begging to invest. That's a real story, by the way. That actually happened. It, yeah, I know. And they end up taking a meeting and taking their initial angel investment from Peter Thiel, who... He's only in this movie for a moment, but obviously pretty uh, impactful. He's probably like the face of Silicon Valley. Him and Mark Anderson are probably like the two most impactful Silicon Valley investors of the modern age. Because he did PayPal too, right? Yeah, Peter Thiel's like kind of the head of what what is called in the Valley the PayPal Mafia, like the the original guys that started PayPal and then used that money to invest in everything else that became so important. Um, and they give uh, Facebook five hundred grand, which I cannot imagine. Like it's it's so crazy. I mean, this is how venture capital works, right? Is you you throw a thousand darts, and when one of these hits, it hits so big that you are set for life. And so, yeah. a five hundred thousand dollar investment in Facebook at the time probably seemed like a ton of money, 
but for a company that's now worth hundreds of billions, I mean, crazy, crazy. Yeah. So as part of that, um, they are going to kind of restructure the company's equity positions and stock, and they have to be able to free up shares to bring on new investors and et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of a very standard part of raising a Series A. And because of this, obviously, Eduardo, who is the acting CFO of Facebook, who's in New York, he is in this weird position where he's geographically and kind of socially isolated from the company, and all these moves are being made without him. And so he's mm-hmm. freaks out, and he freezes the bank account that has like ten grand in it, which is what Facebook is using for effectively like server costs, the, the bare-bones infrastructure that make Facebook possible. Right. And obviously that kind of... Yeah, that power move really like puts him at odds with Zuckerberg with and it allows Sean Parker to kind of be like, see, I told you, like this guy's not, you know, he's not on your team. He's gonna be one of the guys that, you know, mm-hmm. derails you. And so Saverin comes back from New York, he's dealing with Christy, who's now being super crazy about everything. And he go- comes into Facebook's headquarters on the evening of them celebrating their one millionth member, which man, I can't it's so funny that they like I mean it makes total sense that you'd have a party for your one millionth member, but the idea of that being a big milestone for Facebook, who now probably has two or three billion active accounts, is crazy. <laughs> like it's, yeah. That seems like such a small number. Before we get into what happens next, there there is a scene where it, uh, Eduardo meets up with the Facebook lawyers, and he starts writing out the, you know, we're rearranging the structure to make sure we figure out, you know, who owns what if we have to dilute shares. And right. Eduardo's like, yeah, I understand this. I'm a business major. And he signs it. And it's great. It's great because, again, yeah, the they, lawyer they find... even says, he's like, I love business majors. Like... Yeah, gosh. it they You can tell that these two lawyers, just with their subtle exchanges back and forth or subtle looks at each other, they know in the moment and the audience is kind of cued that they're about to screw over Eduardo. But if you didn't catch on to that, Again, it goes back to the structure of the film because as that's happening, Eduardo is in the deposition, and I think his his lawyer says, "Did you know at the time that you were signing your death warrant?" And yeah. and again, I think it's it's subtle how when 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 Eduardo walks into that you know celebrating Facebook milestone meeting, he walks into the office, he sees Mark, and then he hears someone call his name. He looks over, and there's that glass room, and it's one of the lawyers just like waving at him and waves him on into the room. And he's kind of he, he just he's a guy he knows, and he just is like walks in as if he's going to be like, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" If you've ever been ambushed by HR, which you and I yeah. both have, <laughs> um, yeah. talked a little bit about that on this podcast, but like if you've ever been a- ambushed by HR, that is kind of how it goes down. Where like if ever if ever there's a random last minute discussion that HR calls you into, or you know. Uh, just know that it's probably not a good thing. Uh, never. So it's never a good thing, I guess. That's I not say, how they but... give you a raise. That's for sure. No. Like... <laughs> it's not how they give you a raise. Yeah, so he is called into this room. Uh, he thinks he's there for the party, and he kind of shows up, and then, yeah, he gets waved into this room, and this lawyer kind of presents some documents, and he's like, what's going on? He starts reading, and it dawns on him that his share in Facebook is being diluted down to, uh, in this movie, like we mentioned earlier, it is kind of dramatized into being a, a tremendously larger amount than in real life. But he was taken from basically like an equal partner, a one-third share, down to less than Peter Thiel, right? Like 10% right. of the company. And in this movie, they take it down from like 30% to like 0.3%. And obviously, it, it kind of dawns on him what's happened. And so he storms out to Mark's desk and... Uh, Sean Parker, as he's walking out, he's like, uh, he's wired in, which is just like the fucking worst. And 
picks up Mark's uh, laptop and smashes it. He's like, you still wired in? And he's like, you fucked me, blah, blah, blah. And they, they basically just make fun of him. They're just like, you are the CFO of Facebook and you want to blame us because you made a bad dis- business deal with Facebook. And at this moment, uh, this is where I got to say, like, the real Eduardo Saverin is probably so stoked that Andrew Garfield played him because Andrew Garfield Sorry, delivers my Prada's at the cleaner, you pretentious, pretentious. douchebag. Yeah. And he delivers this just like withering anger and then proceeds then calms down and goes, you better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30 percent. I'm coming back for everything. At which point, Sean Parker, like, tries to do this little, like, douchebag, like, here's your, your 10 grand we owe you, but uh, the, the account was frozen, so you might want, he's like, and he, he kind of jukes towards him, and Sean, like, rears back, and he's like, I love standing next to you, Sean. I look so tough, and walks out, like, cool, calm, which, if that's really how it went down, props to Eduardo, dude, I would have been freaking the fuck out. Like, that is, yeah. it was a heinous, and, and that moment is a moment that has been repeated so many times in great American business stories, like mm-hmm. every great founding of one of America's kind of like, not all of them, because like many companies do not have this, but like there are so many times where these kind of like poster child companies for American industry had these moments of just like insane betrayal and under like underhanded movement in order right. on their way to the top. Sean kind of they kind of usher him out with security and in this one moment we see a little bit of regret from Zuck he's like you were really hard on him like even though Zuckerberg was on board with it and this needed to happen he's still like that was pretty fucked like what we just did to this guy but he gets over it very quickly he's got a crush on some chick that works there and he's got his I'm the CEO bitch business cards so he's he's fine I loved first of all the way that Jesse Eisenberg playing Mark Zuckerberg does the whole his initial defense when he's like you're a business major and you didn't know how to read documents that's on you right. man he does it in a way that's like you can tell it's rehearsed and he's shaking in his confidence and that being a good opinion he's like dude you should have known better like it, it just it's acted incredibly well there's a, there's a lot of great nuance and just you can tell that he does he almost doesn't even believe himself it's almost it, like it that's comes not across really as something talking. that someone else told him and allowed exactly. him to feel better and he was like you're right no right. yeah that's that's good yeah i'm gonna use that and so then he's like yeah repeating that verbatim i i wonder if it's harder to do the really nuanced stuff on screen or if it's harder to do some of the bombastic line deliveries and i just imagine reading the script and seeing you know, the action tag, you know, angrily, and then just the plain text, like, sorry, I left my products as the cleaner, you pretend just douchebag. And just like how that's, how he brings that to screen, and also just reading on screen, you know, Eduardo walking, Mark, Mark, and how that plays out where he's storming across from Mark. Right. And, yeah. and the, the third thing I wanted to bring up, which is to me is one of the most important things, is how they establish in this movie that everybody in this whole realm or this sphere of, of software development very much put being wired in on a pedestal throughout this movie there's several times where someone's trying to talk to somebody and they're like oh he's wired in and they're like okay yep. even to the point where there's the scene where the zip line crashes through the roof and it almost hits a guy as he's working and the guy just keeps working and he's like oh he's wired in so it establishes yeah. several times that being wired in is very sacred that like and hacker so, culture is very much at the core of facebook's identity right sure. and so the idea that they're like oh he's wired in and Eduardo's like, oh yeah, and just grabs yeah, the computer exactly. and slams it. Is is not just like a fit of rage. It's a fit of rage that, in the greater context of how they've written this, is 
a huge crossing of the line. Yeah, it violates this kind of like sacred status that they apply to someone when they're working on Facebook's code. Um, exactly. Yeah, and and this is kind of the climax climactic ending scene of the movie. From here we go out into the back into the deposition room. There's this great kind of scene where they're having Eduardo Saverin repeat, like go through the list of like how how much was your share deleted or how much was Mark's share diluted down to? It wasn't. How much was Peter Thiel's share diluted down to? Yeah, it wasn't. Dustin how much was Sean Parker's? Whatever. Yeah, all of them. Yeah. And then how much was your share diluted down to? And he's like point zero three percent. He's just like fuck. Um, yeah, and so, so they the take whole a break. Just lets out an exhale, and it's just like, oh my gosh! Right. And so they take a break from the deposition, and the junior lawyer, played by uh, that that woman from the office, I can't remember her name, uh, but she's oh awesome. yeah, I'm totally blanking. Yes, and uh, she Rashida she Jones. Expl- Thank you, Rashida Jones, and she's one of the junior lawyers on the case, and she's talking to Mark, she's who's alone in the office, and she's like, hey, just so you know, like you're not going to win this case. Like you're going to end up paying these guys. And he's like, no, I'm not like, fuck that. You know, they didn't invent Facebook, blah, blah, you know, kind of back to that attitude of like, if they had invented Facebook, they would have invented Facebook type thing. And she's like, look, like I'm an expert in jury selection. I can make you look like a huge piece of shit instantaneously. You're, you're an un- totally unsympathetic character in the end, pay these guys. Like it's a speeding ticket. You're going to be fine. Like, get them out of here, or otherwise you're going to be dealing with this for, like, ten years, and it's going to destroy you from a PR standpoint. Which is exactly what ended up happening. I mean, the Winklevosses got paid out $65 million, which they then dumped in 2009 into Bitcoin, so they are exceptionally wealthy. They ended up rowing for the United States in Beijing, and Eduardo Saverin also received an unknown settlement, uh, although his name was returned to the Facebook masthead, so you have to assume that, like, if he was suing and he won and not won, but was paid out and he went up from 10% of Facebook, he's got to be worth tens of billions of dollars at this point. Sure. So he's not hurting at all. And I'll say this, dude, that might be the best path because having all the money with Facebook, but not being associated with all the evil that has come from Facebook in its later years sounds fucking awesome. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. and, and he's been immortalized in this great film as being the, the good the guy victim. like yeah exactly which it's not it's not entirely true um and and, and this is where i kind of want to get into the timeline in real life of what happened with eduardo getting booted from the company um particularly the the beginnings of that when you have sean kind of knife his way into the situation when mark first moves out to 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 california during that that summer they're the summer leading into their sophomore year of yeah. college i believe when, when in real life, Eduardo was sent out to New York, he had that internship, but he was also given a few tasks to do. This is from Mark's perspective, and this is, he was supposed to set up a business plan, he was supposed to set up Facebook as a corporation, which later he was asked to, to set up specifically as a Delaware corporation, yeah. and he was also told to go get, um, to go raise money, and he did none of those things. He was unsuccessful in all of those things, including when they, again, asked him to go change the company to a Delaware company. He didn't do any of that. What he did do is behind the backs of the other people at Facebook, he started advertising back when Mark didn't want there to be advertisements on Facebook. He started advertising another company that he was working on. And I don't have the name of the company in front of me, but essentially it was like a job search site, kind of similar to like monster.com. And this was obviously not good because they, they didn't want to advertise. And it was something that it was playing directly into something else that Eduardo was working on. But then also Mark had mentioned that they were potentially looking at adding 
job searching, job fair type stuff to Facebook. So this was almost directly in competition of one of the kind of roadmap items that they had in the near future for Facebook. So, you know, again, I, I guess I should say this is all alleged. I don't know exactly how much of that is true, how much of that is just from Mark's perspective, or how much of that is like verified information. From what I see, though, it's all that stuff is pretty well founded as truthful. So while sure. Eduardo did get pushed out, there was a lot of missteps that he had, not just freezing the bank account, but especially with how he was going about putting ads on the site was particularly oh, her- horrendous, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And, and unfortunately, like the nature of equity is that like being shitty at your job is not enough to rob you of your position in a company. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you look at, you know, very prominent stories like WeWork, like that Adam Newman got a $2 billion golden parachute for effectively crashing one of America's like most valuable private companies in history. That's the nature yeah. of like, if you're first, that is the most important thing. And Eduardo was first and put cash behind it when Mark didn't. So yeah, he ends up, uh, everyone ends up getting paid out. Mark ends up being the owner, sole owner of Facebook. Sean Parker is eventually pushed out after an incident where he is arrested uh, for drug possession in North Carolina. And uh, he ends up, you know, fine. He's plenty rich. But yeah. uh, Mark Zuckerberg is the youngest billionaire in the world and goes on to expand Facebook. He hires um, hedge fund operators in the world who's pretty much invented the SPAC. And he hired him as the chief growth officer. And Facebook embarked on this crazy growth, like five, six-year path of growth where they pretty much took over the entire world and they are the facebook that we know today so the the movie ends with them saying that there's like you know i think they say at the end of the movie there's like over 200 million users or something like that or 300 million users i forget the exact number they use but i think there's over like well over a billion users now and again this movie only came out 12 years ago so i guess i guess that kind of makes sense uh that there'd be that that there'd be growth but it's just funny that back then the number of facebook users was supposed to be staggering and now it's literally a fraction of what it is today yeah right now as of uh january 2022 facebook has 2.9 billion active monthly users that's crazy 2.9 half the world (laughs) like half of those are bots yeah and and that and keep in mind like you can't have facebook in china like there's it's crazy like yeah that's that is nuts you could have it in russia yeah, and you can have it in India. So you know, plenty. You got plenty of you got plenty of uh, markets to go into. But looking at this movie as a whole, I think it's it's clear just on the tone and how they approach this movie that they understood even at the time how important of a story they were telling. That this was going to be on the same level as like the founding of Apple, the founding of Microsoft, the founding mm. of McDonald's. Um, they were telling a story that would be studied in American business school for the next century. And they approached it with that kind of like reverence and an understanding of the importance of the drama that took place behind the scenes. And I think it's it's crazy because as, even as we've you know fast forward ten years, Facebook has become so impactful to society in general that this story only gets more important as time goes on. And uh, we're really fortunate that someone tackled this story with this level of quality because this is one of probably one of the best if not the best kind of you know corporate founding origin movies ever made and uh it's fitting that it's in about facebook who has come to shape uh so much of the discourse so much of the culture so many 
very interesting side stories that have spun off of Facebook, and it all kind of traces back to these kids in their dorm room at Harvard, um, yeah. and that was kind of recorded here in this film. It, it is truly crazy that the marriage between David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin was allowed to happen, and then it worked so well, because yeah, it's awesome. Fincher, is, Fincher is known as this highly moody, thematic, theatrical director that will again almost like comic booky in nature like movies like seven and fight club and you know he worked on house of cards the first few seasons the good seasons he worked on uh mine hunter which is a great show if you haven't seen that he did gone girl which is another just incredible movie but if it if you again if you've seen those movies they're highly textualized highly like shadowed there's lots of contrast very moody whereas what Sorkin normally works on, things like A Few Good Men and The West Wing, is very dialogue-driven. It's It doesn't go that heavy into the thematic. It's it's very character-driven. And it really, you know, from like a sports perspective, this would be like if, you know, it's, it's like the fact that Kobe and Shaq work together. It's like Kareem and Magic Johnson. Like, you would not think these two parties could mesh together so well. And it was a bit of a Hail Mary. And, a, and it, it took a lot of... I think it took a lot of concessions by both parties to allow like for David Fincher to set the scene and then allow for the Sorkin dialogue to take place to create kind of clever back and forth. But then for, as, as we pointed out with a few scenes where Sorkin allowed for some script changes to allow for the more thematic dialogue lines to be delivered and things like that, dude, it is, it, (laughs) it's, it's very rare that you see just such a perfect match of director and writer. It is done so, so well incredibly well. Man, just one note I'm reading here on Saverin's Wikipedia page. When he got the payout from Facebook, he renounced his U.S. citizenship in September of 2011 and had moved to Singapore, and he dodged $700 million in capital gains taxes by making that move. Oh my gosh. Dude. The IRS has a fucking wanted poster on for this dude, man. They're like, we missed the bag on this motherfucker. Come on. So, dude, yeah, he's lived I, in Singapore since then. So he's worth $11.9 billion now. Saverin is? Yeah. Dude, that's nuts. I've talked a little bit in passing with uh, certain family members about, I wonder in 30 years and 40 years what the most advantageous place in the world to to live in from like a retirement perspective and like what the steps would look like to move and – in my perspective, I'm talking about saving a few hundred thousand dollars at the most, whereas this guy's like dodging seven hundred million dollars. Yeah, That's I mean, nuts. I can't, I can't, I can't wrap my mind around that. The, what a great uh, move! When the uh, you know the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers leaked, you kind of got our normal people kind of got an inside look at how that occurs. Because obviously, yeah. there is there's two levels, right? There's tax uh, avoidance, which is totally legal that's you know having your company headquartered at a p.o box in delaware type stuff and then there is tax dodging like the the you know shell companies in you know banana republics type behavior and we have seen i mean you know uh what's his name john mcafee moved to you know belize Belize. for, for that reason like your money goes a long way you can almost buy citizenship they do not have the banking laws that we have here yeah it's a that's a crazy crazy like secondary economy that once you graduate into this like high net worth individual status um you become very concerned with uh you know not paying your fair share effectively like uh and oftentimes it's it's so funny because it's like the United States functions as this uh 
protective womb that allows for these great companies to exist, right? Like it's our infrastructure, it's our market, it's our, you know, our trade policy, our military that protects our country, all these things that make these companies exist. And then as soon as someone makes a lot of money with those companies, they're like, well, I did all this on my own with my own hard work, so I shouldn't have to pay taxes. I'm moving to wherever, you know, like the middle of nowhere. You're just like, all right, man, like, come on, dude, like, you'll be fine on only you know, 40% of 20 billion or whatever it is like. So, but yeah, it's you, a, you didn't see that within the country. Did you watch that video that I sent about what Cal It's this guy who used to work for Stratfor, who is a geopolitical analyst. Who's an author who yeah. basically does this video about what's going to happen in his mind between California and Texas over the next 30 years. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Really interesting. And, and I just thought it was a fascinating point that like, as prices and cost of living drive up in California, like they're not, there's going to be labor shortages and like as there's 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 less travel between california and mexico and so they're not gonna be able to fill some of these roles they traditionally do and that's going to lead to less government like bureaucracy is going to slow down like it's going to be more expensive to like from a transportation perspective to build new things so you're going to see like a slow decay of like new things of government running the way it should and you're going to see a lot of old heads like people retiring and they're not going to put up with that. So they're going to take their, even if they're not like uber wealthy, if you're retiring right. with like a million bucks. Just in volume, to, a lot of yeah. them with a, a good amount of money for sure. Right. So well, they're trying they're, to close so many loopholes now. Like forever, there's been this kind of exotic car loophole. That it's called the Montana system. And it's like if you buy uh, a Ferrari, for instance, and you want to buy that in a lot of states, you pay a significant amount of sales tax on one of these cars, right? They're a yeah. million dollars or whatever. And you got to pay... Um, like Cassie, for instance, when she lived in Connecticut, her sh- piece of shit Chevy Equinox was like $1,500 a year to the state of Connecticut just to have this car in their state. And Wait, what? For why? Yeah. Like they, they have just a property as a, tax? A ta- just as a tax on your you having this vehicle. So like all we pay in Texas is like vehicle registration, right? It's like 150 bucks right. a year in Connecticut. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that's a way to set off carbon footprint too. For sure. Like, yeah, and also like, like for like roads. Like they, taxes. Yeah, and, and pay for the road usage, things like that. So there's been this loophole forever where the state of Montana does not give a shit. And so you can register your car in the state of Montana. You put a Montana plate on it and they'll be like, cool. Fine. And so that you'll see if you start looking, whenever you see like a Ferrari, a Lambo, really high end, you know, Porsche, GT2 RS, a lot of them have Montana plates for that reason. Is that these this has been a tax dodge for hyper wealthy people that own twenty cars for a very long time and now they're starting to finally be like Okay, if you want, because like even like Texas, even states that are pretty chill about taxes are starting yeah. to be like, Well, we want our hundred and fifty bucks. So you can do that, but we're gonna have you pay an import on that car if you if it's really from montana or whatever so they're starting to try to like fix some of those holes i've said forever man like it bugs the shit out of me that a company like amazon as a company pays less taxes than i do as a person like that's very frustrating to me and i feel like we often debate like who you know should should i should andy pay more taxes or should someone that works at starbucks pay more taxes or should someone more wealthy than andy pay taxes and in reality it's like i feel like if we just got these companies that make you know $500 billion a year to pay a little bit of taxes, we wouldn't even have to worry about, like, 
American citizens paying taxes when yeah. a company like Amazon uses a shitload of our infrastructure. Like how many, how much road damage is being done just by the volume of Amazon trucks driving on them every single year? Like they yeah. are doing a huge amount of the work. Well, it, so it's, like, a, it's a fight for your wants and needs. One of the things that Stratford video brings up is that the governor of Texas will literally go around with municipalities and will go pitch companies that are that have been historically in like Michigan or Ohio or whatever and be like yo you're paying 20% state tax on the on XYZ if you move your headquarters to Texas we will defer all of that for 20 years and then hey you also won't have to you'll you'll pay 8% of that moving forward and they're like yeah, yeah. and then so it brings you know 10,000 jobs to Dallas or Houston or Austin. So we see, we're seeing well, that you a hope ton it does. in like all the, three of those cities. It, it, can go, it can go both ways. So like there was this very famous situation in Wisconsin a couple of years ago where Foxconn was wanting to put a new manufacturing plant. And Wisconsin's governor rolled out the red carpet, like paid them cash, a couple hundred million bucks, no taxes for whenever, gave them all this land for free, all this shit. And Foxconn took all the money and never built the factory. Yeah, and I heard like, about that. Yeah, it was a huge I feel like I heard deal. about that around the re- the election. Was that like a political thing too? It it was or highly politicized not? because uh at the time like both candidates waited on it and Trump went to the groundbreaking for the factory and was like, "Hey, I'm bringing manufacturing jobs back to this place like any president would." And so yeah, there's just this like weird there's a weird relationship between like corporations being courted by municipalities, which makes total sense, and then will that corporation fulfill their promises to that municipality in exchange for those benefits, right? Like that is the that's the give and take is you have to you have to trust that this corporation is going to actually bring you the number of jobs the the level of paying jobs um you know austin got this gigafactory from tesla and it's become a huge debate here in town because tesla factory is great and it's cool for the city and it you know brings in lots of jobs tesla factories are also notoriously incredibly unsafe uh, not unionized, mm. so they don't pay super great, and they have industrial accidents at a rate nine times higher than any other manufacturing company of their size in the United States. And so, what is you know what do you do? You want you want that tax revenue, you want those jobs, but do you want to deal with all the flack that'll come with like people getting their arm chopped off trying to put together a Model Three, right? Like, so it's it's one of those things. It's a complicated issue. Well, if but... it's it, well, if they're cutting down on their carbon emissions, then of course. <laughs> Yeah, Texas, very notoriously concerned with the carbon footprint, for sure. So, um, but yeah, that that all stemmed from this discussion of Saverin. Um, but he made it out okay. Um, like I said, I think him and David Cho, man, that's David the, Cho, that's, that's the, the winners, bro. Those are the winners. Yeah, I'm looking for that David Cho deal. I, I want somebody to do a novel discourse episode on something, and then we're like, well, can I get one percent of royalties for this moving forward, though? That's how we're gonna <laughs> do it. So that's how we're gonna rad, make dude. it out. That's where we're gonna Hell make yeah. it out. So we're uh, anyways, man. Fi- final yeah, thoughts. Yeah, no, I dude. This is this is one of the ten best movies of the twenty first century. Um, I am obsessed with like business type movies. I love the Jobs movie that Sorkin did. Uh, I yep. love this. I watch all those kind of movies, and this is probably the that genre in its finest form. Um, yep. It is incredibly tight. It is incredibly perfectly done. The cast is absolutely killer. I'm not going to say it's like photorealistic accurate as far as like all the depictions of everyone or like the events, but it tells an incredibly compelling story that could have otherwise been incredibly dry. And I think that is an incredibly important thing because this story is very, very crucial to people understanding something that plays a huge role in their lives. Oh, yeah. Um, there, there's a that, there's a video that Honest Trailers does where it's like yeah. it, one of the lines they say is, 
this movie takes you know the most boring topic of all time and makes it interesting and that's yeah i think that's very it's, apt. it's very in the same same vein as like the big short where i'm just like this is an important topic for people to understand and you have to tell that in such a way that it's entertaining and this does a good job with that for someone like mark zuckerberg who has come to wield such incredibly outsized influence and power on public discourse on not even in the United States, but in the world. I mean, Facebook has decided elections in dozens of countries. Us understanding him, how he started this business, why he started this business, what his goals are, what motivates him. I think that's important. And this movie shed some light on that. So yeah, yeah man, it's, it's one of my favorite movies. I know this is your favorite movie. Um, and I would, I'm right there with you. It's incredible. It's so incredible. Yeah. Work. It's, it's my favorite movie. And if I can think of another one that tops it, I will be sure to update that. But I, again, as I just avatar, was... the last airbender. <sighs> yeah. I was thinking more like <laughs> dragon ball evolution. Hell yeah. I'm not convinced the creators of that movie had ever seen Dragon Ball or understood the topic. It's really like it really did seem like they were like they read the Wikipedia synopsis for Dragon Ball and were like we could do this. This is fine. Yeah. Oh, so bad. Well, that's yeah. Avatar: The Last Airbender has the same problem, but not not knowing your source material is a is a big deal. Um, and in this movie, they they knew their source material and then took liberties, which we talked about. We talked a little bit about in our episode about remember the Titans, how they took a ton of liberties as to like. Oh, yeah. what actually happened and who did what we, we took off points a little bit because they not only changed and made some artistic liberties but the, those artistic liberties completely changed the outcome and morals of the story because in real life the high school that's covered on remember the titans was actually the holdout they were the ones that were not yeah uh desegregated in their entire district so they were like and then they made it also they were a pow- also they were like a powerhouse like they're they're pitched as this like underdog and really they were like mashing everyone by like 90 they, points they won every, every game by 50 points yeah <laughs> but i think this you know this one obviously takes a ton of liberties especially with making sure that everybody walks away thinking that eduardo is the victim which in a lot of ways in real life he he was a little bit victimized but there truly was two sides to this story yeah. i do think as as to tell a compelling story, however, you, you do have to kind of lean a little bit in one way and create compelling characters, like being motivated by real things and not just show, like, if you make it too gray sometimes, it can be, you can walk out feeling a little bit like who really won here and who really lost here, which I think it was an important decision that Sorkin made um, to kind of add some color where needed. I, I As I said, this is probably my favorite movie. I think it is... From a directorial perspective, Fincher does such a great job. The actors knock it out of the park, which we've discussed ad nauseum. And the dialogue is both realistic and thematic and does a great job of allowing the actors to play off one another in a way that creates real tension, real pacing. Like when when they start going back and forth at high stakes moments, the dialogue gets faster. When they really need to drill something down, they'll slow down with the, you know, you better lawyer up, asshole, you know. So... Sorkin has been lauded as doing as writing dialogue in almost like a musical way where there's lots of ebbs and flows to the pace and he does that perfectly in this film and you know I I actually watched it this last time trying to figure out if there was a single bad line of dialogue and the only one that I found was the entry scene to the Winklevoss brothers when they're when they're rowing you know they're rowing in, in some river next to Harvard and they're beating these guys by a few lengths and one of them basically quips that you know, we better, maybe we should row against one another to make this a fair race. And then the other brother says, we wouldn't move anywhere. Or science says we wouldn't move anywhere. We're, because we're identical. 
which is just a, such a heavy-handed yeah. way of like drilling in that they're identical brothers and that you're not seeing things on the screen. Again, it makes sense in the context of what they're trying to do, but it was like the only clunky line in the entire film that I could think about. Um, you know, and the rest of it is I think it's just so pure. So yeah, it's a ten out of ten for me. Yeah, I'd have to agree. What with did you have you? it as? Um, it's it's perfect. It's a it is like the representative film of his genre i think if you're trying to tell like a human interest story about the the corporate drama around the founding of an important company this is your benchmark like you're you're all aiming anyone that tells a story like this is aiming for the social network and it's going to be a movie i watch you know for the rest of my life and it's an important like i said it's such an important movie i think it's going to be viewed probably in in an academic sense in classrooms for for decades to come because facebook looms so large in society so incredible incredible film yeah all right as always it's been super enjoyable andy i I appreciate you joining and we've got some some fun episodes coming up we've got um we've got annihilation coming up which will be really fun and then we've got our best villains draft coming up in a few i'm very excited for that that, that'll be enjoyable uh i feel like i'm gonna knock that one out of the park more so than the 90s the episode but Anyways, as always, uh, if you liked what you heard, please give us a, a follow and like and subscribe. We greatly appreciate that. This is Donald Discourse, and I'm Sam. I'm Andy. And we'll see you next time. Peace. Peace. Peace.